Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you to the board, the Scaling family, Pastor Brandon, the Hortons, and all the volunteers at Joseph Slocker. And I think I have a word that will encourage you if you'll be able to stick with me. In Luke 14, is a parable of the Great Supper. Wasn't this a great supper? We've enjoyed it. Fourteenth chapter of Luke, I'll be reading from the New King James, so bear with me here. Jesus is at a supper in the context at a Pharisee's house, and he heals a man of dropsy, which uh, may have been some type of palsy, and upset him because it wasn't time for healing. They had formed a theology based on the fact that God rested on the seventh day, and so because he rested on the seventh day, that must mean he doesn't do anything on the seventh day. If you've been around Christianity long, you learn God never does the same thing twice in the same way. He's a God of variety. Uh, the Bible's not a box in which he's contained. He's a lens through which he is revealed. And he doesn't violate his word, but his word reveals him. And so uh, they had formed a theology and hardened their hearts. And uh, the theology was no one could be healed on the Sabbath because God rests on the Sabbath. So if someone's healed, it must not be God. And so... Uh, they're, you know, they're questioning him. And so he kind of turns the tables on them after he heals the guy. He's got their attention. And he begins to give them instructions on when you go to a supper. He actually tells them what Solomon wrote in Proverbs. If you're invited to a banquet or a dinner, don't go sitting at the head table. You might get invited to uh, sit down because the mayor has showed up and you're sitting in his seat. So, you know, the Lord's giving wisdom to the guests there. And uh, he says, you know, if you're going to sit at the head table, better to better wait on confirmation. Let them come, come and say, hey, come sit up here, and then you won't be humiliated in front of people. And then he goes into this parable uh, in response to this statement of one of the people at the supper. He's at a meal like this, and said so one of those who sat at the table with him, verse 15 of Luke 14, heard these things, and he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He didn't know that Jesus is the kingdom of God and that he was providing bread to eat. The man with dropsy had just eaten some and the others weren't eating of his bread even though he was giving them wise advice that would save them embarrassment. They were rejecting him and so this guy jumps way into the future. Plus, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so the Lord tells this parable. Verse 16, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. So he had sent out invitations and then when the day came, he sent out reminders. Hey, the dinner's here, come. Verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Even though they had RSVP'd, I guess, they began to cancel their reservations. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I don't know why he couldn't say, hey, can I bring my wife? <laughs> Verse 21, so the master, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, 
Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Can we all say the city? And bring in here the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind. And the servant said, it is done as you commanded. And still there is room. So they went throughout the city in this story and brought in all the hurting folks. And there were still empty seats. Then the master said to his servants, go out into the highways and hedges. Can we say the country? city and the country, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste of my supper. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that we just read. I pray, Lord, that you make it live to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the living word. Lord, I know ultimately this parable is talking about the kingdom of God. That it came to the children of Abraham first, biological children of Abraham first, and they began to make excuses. You're healing on the Sabbath, and uh, we've got important things to do. And so, you know, some things were good, but there's bread being served in the kingdom of God. There's an awesome supper being offered here. What are you doing? Not bringing your wife, and what are you doing in allowing animals and all the cares of life to get in the way? And so, I know ultimately it's about the kingdom of God because then. The Lord opened the door to the Gentiles. And according to Romans 11, it says, If the blindness of Abraham's children has brought blessing to the Gentiles, what will their seeing be but life from the dead? And in our day, there is, a, there is a revival of spiritual awakenings of Jews coming to know their Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, by the thousands. Today, there's over 200 congregations of Jesus-believing people in Israel. Our church started 21 years ago. We were involved in children's ministry, so they recruited us to come here from the Metroplex and help get this group going. And eventually, nine months later, I became the pastor. Now, 20 years later, we got a youth group made up of people that weren't even alive when the church started. So things you're doing, the bridge you build is for future generations. This parable came very much alive to me recently when our daughter got married. Somebody finally chased her till she caught him. I mean, she turned this dude down five times before she finally said, okay, I'll go out with you. And he won her heart. Not only did he win her heart, he paid for the wedding. And it was the wedding of the century. But because he paid for the wedding, we didn't have much control of the guest list. And only about 30 people from our congregation who helped us raise her got invited to the wedding. There just wasn't room for other people. So to make up for that, we planned with their agreement a second reception a month after the wedding. Exactly four weeks later, at our church, we had a reception for them called a marriage celebration. Now, we couldn't promote it to after the wedding. Otherwise, that would confuse people. So when people got invitations, it was less than a month to the wedding. All the date that my daughter and her husband-to-be said would be good for them, we didn't realize that was the Saturday of spring break week. So that impacted the event. Needless to say, we sent out 100, exactly 100 invitations, hoping to get 120 people. So we were ready for 120 people. 
It was catered by Del Norte. Mesquite grilled chicken. Black and green beans. Fresh garden salad with Sorrento ranch dressing. Red velvet cake truffles on chocolate lace doilies. And sweet tea from chicken E. <laughs> Folgers hot coffee. And music that was really good. We got a horn section. These students from UNT, if you ever want a horn section on Sunday morning, you can get these students from UNT cheap. And we're not that far away from Denton. So, I mean, we did it right. It was a wonderful evening. But my estimation is there were 38 empty seats. We're at a great event here tonight. Daddy Cat Catering Barbecue. The sauce was to die for. I think I know what the secret reading is. I got some orange rind in mine. That is awesome. The brisket melted in your mouth. The chopped beef was out of this world. That beef sausage was some of the best I've ever had. And the sweet tea from chicken eat was iced. <laughs> the chocolate cake, the Folgers coffee with two packets of sugar and some creamer from the creamer container that I broke. I'm so sorry. It was awesome. A little of the chocolate frosting in it. It's really good. <laughs> but look around. There's a few empty seats. For one reason or another, some people couldn't come. Tomorrow morning, a feast, spiritually, may even include some physical food, is going to be served all over this city. Ministers have their sermons prepared to declare the gospel with illustrations to help people remember stuff. That's why preachers tell stories. If, you, if they don't tell them, it's just straight truth and it's hard to take it. Ugh, our flesh doesn't want to remember it, but the stories makes it stick and they can't help but remember it. The ushers will be ready. The janitorial staff or volunteers have cleaned the buildings and made them spotless. The toilets even smell good. The children's workers are prepared. The nurseries have been deodorized. The Sunday school lessons are spot on to reach the heart. The music is ready. And tomorrow morning, the gospel will be proclaimed. Children will be ministered to in a safe place. But in most churches, there's going to be something sad. Empty seats. Joseph Slocker and ministries like Joseph Slocker is to minister to those people who believe they're too blind, too lame, too maimed, too poorly clothed, or even too hungry, or too lost, or too shamefaced to ever darken the doors of a church. And yet you all are touching them. Inviting them to the feast. You, you, you see it? I'm an exhorter. If you don't see it, I'll just hammer on and hammer on and hammer on to you. Until somebody stands and say, all right, pastor, I got it. I'm like my mother. She was a lecturer. And we'd say, mama, go ahead and whip us. We got the point. No more sermon, please. 
First Baptist Church, probably 14 years ago, did a survey on Sunday afternoons for several weeks. And they discovered, at that time, I think it's worse now, only 18% of the people in the Granbury area claimed to have a church home. And you know some of them were lying. There needs to be more churches in Granbury. But the point I'm making is there's empty seats. There's room for more than they're coming. So we've got to do what we can to reach them. Thank God for ministries like Joseph's Locker that are there to provide clothing and food for the poor. You're providing the feast with food. The gospel with actions. One of the old Catholic saints said, preach the gospel everywhere. And when necessary, use words. That bag of groceries says that Jesus loves them. Says that somebody cares. What you're doing is worth it. Maybe somebody in this room was invited to a church and didn't take out the invitation. And yet, Joseph Slocker touched your heart. And now you're part of Joseph Slocker. And wherever two or three are gathered in his name to do his will, I call that church. This is. Lifeway Baptist Bookstores did a survey of 15,000 people in 2009 and discovered 70% of the unchurched people in America that they surveyed had never been invited to church the first time. And over half of them would be open to visiting church if invited. That's encouraging. Now here's what's alarming. In their survey of over 15,000 people three years ago, only 2% of the average American church-growing Christian in a given year has invited at least one person to church. And in a given year, 98% of the average church-going people have never even invited one person to church in that year. You guys are part of the 2%. You're not just inviting, come to the feast. You're taking the feast to them. Give yourselves a hand. We live... In a world filled with shame. I text. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. The world in which we live knows something wrong. They know they're in sin. And therefore, they have a shame, distress over the things in their life that are wrong. And so when they come to church, if all they hear preached is sin, 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 they already know that. Now, the world's trying to remedy the shame game by helping them to shift the blame. That's what some counselors do. They help somebody to, to blame their parents or blame some way 
you know, how it started. And I think it's helpful to understand why a person may have a weakness. But if you stop there, all you've done is blame shift. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden. It's nothing new. Did you eat of the tree of the witch I told you not to eat? The woman you gave me, she gave me and I ate. He had the shame. He knew he was naked. He ran and hid himself. And then when confronted, he tried to put his shame on his wife and shift the blame on her. What did she do? The devil made me do it. <laughs> so we live in a world full of shame. People are hurting because of what they've done or because of what's been done to them. And the world doesn't have a solution for it. The only thing they do is pile on more shame. Have you ever watched Jerry Springer? You know, those DNA tests? The guy's got shame put on him. He's some baby's daddy and he says he's not. The DNA test happens. And if it if it's, comes out negative, the shame's off of him. But then the shame is piled on the mama. You know. And the crowd just joins in with it. I mean, it's a frenzy. You will not believe how they're so judgmental and harsh. And this is, this is the world in which we live, piling the shame on people. But if the test is positive, then the shame is piled on the daddy for not being responsible. It's not helping. It's just pointing out the problem that's in our world. So you got blame shifting and you got the piling on of shame. You also have the world attempting to justify shameful things. By saying something that once was shameful is no longer shameful. Shame is bad, so we're going to say it's no longer shameful. So if we can legalize men marrying men, Billy and Bob becoming the Billy Bob family, it's no longer wrong Then we have lifted the shame off of them. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel lifts the shame off of us because Jesus took the shame upon himself. That doesn't justify sin, but it justifies sinners who put their faith in Him for lifting their shame. On the cross, Jesus Christ made a covenant with God, between God and man. He fulfilled the curse. All those curses that are listed in Genesis chapter 3, if you look at what Jesus did, He did it all. He sweat as it were great drops of blood. He had a crown of thorns. He went through agony to give birth to children had one heel bruised. Remember Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman, not seeds, seed of the woman, will bruise the head of the devil. Jesus is the seed of a woman. He's called himself the son of man, but he's actually the son of a woman. The seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. And in his crucifixion, he hung on three nails, one foot on top of the other, and a nail driven through both feet, putting all the weight of his body on one heel, and the nails driven through his hands, either hand. The bruising of one heel. Why did he do that? To take the shame away that the servant had brought into the human race through what Adam and Eve had done. That was done for us. Jesus did that for us. I know that there's a lot of people that are poor in this world and it's not their fault. There's also a lot of people that are poor in this world and it goes back to choices that they made. And the world will pile the responsibility on them and just put shame on them because they have nothing else. Well, you made the wrong choice. You just not made some poor choices. What good does that do if they're hungry and they're starving and they're naked? They're going to, do, they're going to make poor wrong choices. But the good news of the gospel is the Father so loved us that he gave his son. 
so that whoever would believe in him would not have to perish, but could have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. But that the world through him might be saved. In closing, I'd like to jump to Acts chapter 8. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. The angel of the Lord leads Philip to, to catch up with. He's sitting down in this chariot, so it's not your kind of chariot maybe you've seen in the movies. It's some kind of stagecoach or some kind of carriage. He's sitting down and he's reading Isaiah aloud. And he's reading the passage from chapter 53, talking about Jesus' death and him bearing his shame. said, who will declare his generation? If a person died with no one to declare their generation, that meant they had no children. Because in their culture, you were the son of, who was the son of, who was the son of, who was the son of. You know, you read the genealogy of Jesus, there's some mamas in there. You know? Rahab and Tamar and others. And your legacy lived on in your kids. Just as Sister Scaling's legacy lives on in, in Ethan. Wasn't that some good music tonight? Thank you so much. Here's a eunuch, just happened to read this. Now think about this. He'd gone to Jerusalem, thousands of miles from Ethiopia, went to Israel to worship. He was not allowed in the very respectable places in the temple because he was a eunuch. Read the law. If you were a eunuch, you were not allowed in the temple. So I don't know where he went to worship in Jerusalem, but it must have been a disappointing journey. Philip comes to him when he is reading that very passage and declares Christ to him. Yes, Jesus did. Jesus died without children, but you read a few verses later, who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. So he died between two thieves, and then he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul, soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Meaning he's going to be resurrected and he's going to have children. He shall. It's right there in the latter part of verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And there on that chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch was born again because he suddenly, somehow, there generated in his, in his heart a desire to be baptized in water. Only when a person's saved do they want to be baptized in water. Unless, unless somebody's preached water baptism too strong, and then all they do is get wet. You baptize an unbeliever, he's going to still be an unbeliever. Water doesn't save you, Jesus saves. Amen. And when he saves you, he gives you a desire to obey him, which is to be baptized. And Philip wouldn't do it unless he asked him this question. He said, only if you believe... And he said, right there in Acts 8, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And like that, he became one of the children of Jesus. It's ironic to me that one of Jesus' names in Isaiah 9 is Everlasting Father. He brings the new birth to us. So here's a eunuch who may have experienced some shame in the temple at the hand of the Old Testament law. The law does that. It points out sin. experiences freedom from shame. Because Jesus identified with his issue. 
He was going to die without natural children. Jesus died without natural children. I don't care who we face. In life and ministry, Jesus identified with their wickedness. He bore their sin. He carried their sin. So we cannot hold anyone's sin against them. We cannot have a favorite sin, you know. You just can't do that. God hates sin. But he loves sinners. And he made a way for sinners to be saved. You know, God knows everything, but I I love it during an altar call to tell about the four things God doesn't know. He knows everything. He knew you. He knew He knew you before you were born. He knew you were going to be here today. But yet there's four things he doesn't know. He doesn't know a sin he doesn't hate. He doesn't know a sinner he doesn't love. And he doesn't know of any other way to save a sinner that he loves from the sin that he hates other than through faith in what his son has done for them. To turn from their sin to him for salvation. There's no other way. And number four, he knows of no better way to save the sinners that he loves from the sin that he hates. He knows of no better time than right now. Because now is a time and today is a day of salvation. He bore our shame. May the Lord empower you to help minister life to people as you give them food and groceries and clothing, as you serve them, as you help them. May the Lord help you to minister life in such a way that their shame is lifted. Not because you've said shameful things are no longer shameful, but because Jesus took our shame. We can run boldly to the hymn of the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Some people have shame on them because of what was done to them. Some people have shame on them because of what they've done. It doesn't matter. Jesus bore it all. He carried our sorrows and bore our iniquities. Bruised for our inward wickedness. Wounded for our outward sinful acts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you for the glorious gospel. Lord, I thank you for this delicious meal and the wonderful music and ministry that we've enjoyed. Lord, help us to be aware of the empty seats in our lives every day that are a place where people could come and be freed from their sin. There's places at your table for the crippled, the lime and the maimed to come and sit and not be living in some low place ever again. In Jesus' name, I ask you, Lord, to encourage every person. Thank you, Lord, for the scaling family. Thank you, Lord, for the board and the volunteers and the givers. And and for those who don't even know Joseph's Locker exists yet, that in the next year we'll be helping them. Thank you, Lord, for the churches in our city, for all the food pantries that are in operation, for all the things our congregations are doing, Lord. We pray for your blessing. Use us, Lord, to minister life to people that only get shame and blame on the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.